Sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko opanayiko pachatang veditabo vinyuhi tamahang damang abipujayami tamahang damang Sivasanamami Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasango Ujupatipano Bhagavato Savakasango Yaya Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sami Chipati Pano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Yati Dang Chatari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala Esa Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Ahuneyo Pahuneyo Dakhineyo Anjali Karaniyo Anutarang Punya Ketang Lokasa Tamahang Sangang Abhipujayami Tamahang Sangang Sirasanamami Seen and the unseen, 
those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, upwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill-will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Oh, we now have the interesting question time. You notice I said interesting question. <laughs> okay, see what we've got here. go. Now somebody once asked me, why don't you bring, why aren't you allowed to bring shoes into the hall? And the main reason is because in some countries it's the, uh, the custom to throw shoes at the speaker if they don't like what he says. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, can we talk about the doer and the knower of the mind? Yeah, in meditation we try to reduce the doer part of the mind. If so, in applying loving kindness to the breath, is not this the true doer? No, it's not. Why do you have to apply loving kindness towards the breath? Real loving kindness is what happens when you do nothing. It's almost like a natural default state of the mind to have this beautiful opening the door of your heart with whatever is happening, to have this care. It's not what you do, it's what happens when you stop doing things. A lot of the doing, if it comes from the sense of self, 
it usually puts you in a more important place than other people. That's one of the uh, little stories which I do to understand what loving kindness is. It's, and it takes away the sense of you doing stuff. Is that story about when I uh, bless weddings? Because Buddhists say, I don't know why they invite the monks to bless weddings. I've never been married, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> many, uh, a century or two ago in Thailand, there was, uh, I think, the king at the time, uh, wasn't the current king or the previous king, but uh, he had about four of his uh, family members, I think, princes and princesses or whatever, they were all getting married. And so just to make it interesting and more convenient, he just uh, uh, decided to do it all on the same day. And so he invited this monk in to do the blessing for this, you know, four of his family getting married the same day. And so the monk came in, and as we usually do, he gave a little talk first of all. But this was a really great monk, and his talk was just so amazing and so deep that all the guys decided to become monks instead. <laughs> None of them got married. <laughs> he never invited that monk ever again. <laughs> but anyway, when I, when I did his blessings for marriage, a trick about marriage, about the doer and the knower of the mind and, and how you stop doing stuff, is you look at the, you've heard me say this before, many of you, you look at the bride. You know, she's just been married and it looks really sweet. And I said to her, the most important thing in a marriage, now you're married, you must never think of yourself. And she nods. And then I look at the, the husband, the guy who's just got married. And a lot of times it's an Australian guy. And so I look at him and say, now you're married, you must not think of yourself either. I don't know what it is. This is just not my experience. He pauses, first of all, thinks about it for a while. <laughs> it's true, I'll just say what happens. But anyway, he says, yes, okay, I won't think of myself. And then uh, I look, still looking at him, I said, now you're a married man. From this moment on, you must not think of her anymore. You mustn't think of your wife. And I quickly look at her and say, and you too, now you're married, you must not think of him. <laughs> and I love that moment because, you know, they respect me, but then they think, Ajahn Brahm really has gone mad now. <laughs> what do you mean I'm not allowed to, uh, to think of my husband, my, my wife? And I say, once you're married, you must never think of yourself, nor must you think of your partner. You must only think of us. You're in this together. When I say that, ah, yes, they get it. It's a wonderful thing because if you do things and try to fix things, you usually make it worse. So instead of you doing things, the loving kindness means we do it. Not me. But anyway, the doer is not part of the mind. If the doer was part of the mind, then when you get into these jhanas, the mind is still there. But the do is gone. It means there must be some uh, part of your mind has vanished or you go into a different mind. Because that's what happens. 
And of course, it always feels you've assumed ever since you were born that the doer is part of you, part of your mind. And it's an assumption which is very hard to, to, to kick. And it's because you've grown up like that, and most other people think like that. But then once you get to these experiences of you're there, you're perfectly aware, very refined mindfulness, very peaceful, very happy, having a wonderful time, there's no doer left. And you go in those places for hours. And afterwards, you know, you look back upon it, it's really clear to see the doer's gone. That's why it's still. There's nothing to disturb you. Anyway. Dear Ajahn, happiness is contentment is. Are they the same or different? There are so many, what I call, like, flavours of happiness. That's why when I read out uh, from the suttas about that if people criticise you, monks and nuns, that you're into pursuing happiness, you say, yeah, depends which type you mean. If it's um, the happiness of the, of the mind, you say, yeah, that's what we do. And they say, then... What is the result of that? And the result of that is the four stages of enlightenment. And that's contentment. If we chant that, to be content and easily satisfied, not proud, let the ego disappear and easily satisfied. <laughs> Sorry, that's what you should do if you, uh, this is what should be done uh, for the path of, of peace and happiness. That's all we chant. Are they the same or different? You might say they're close enough to being the same, but they get different in the, the really deep happinesses, our contentment. Dear Ajahn Brahm, is it true that Ajahn Charles was responsible for setting up the Thai forest tradition? No. Forest tradition has been there for, for ages. There's been forest traditions in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, in so many different places. So these Ajahn Chah's teachers, they were forest monks. There was uh, one of those forest monks, Ajahn Uri. Uh, but anyway, he was really famous because he was really a tough monk. And he would actually go off into the forest and if he saw a tiger, he would kick it. <laughs> and he was just fearless, this guy. He'd kick it in the back and the tiger would run, <laughs> would run away. <laughs> he really taught the tigers what to do. Uh, what was his name? Okay, I can't remember his name. I haven't said his name for such a long time. But they had forest monks like that for ages. And some of those forest monks, they didn't have a... Sorry? No, 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 Ajahn Man. This was, Ajahn Man was one type of forest monk. There's a whole other, whole stream. Sorry? Who? No, it wasn't Ajahn Man. No, it wasn't Ajahn Tate. It was one of the monks over in the northeast. That's, no one else really knew about him. But Ajahn Chah would tell all these stories about some of these monks. And many of these monks, you wouldn't even know they existed. Because, Ajahn Tonglat, 
could have been him anyway. You wouldn't have known they existed because they didn't go around teaching. It was in those days they would only have a few um, disciples. And they live out in the forest and the jungles. They wouldn't write any books. That's why they never got reborn as donkeys. <laughs> and but they were amazing teachers. You only knew them by the reputation by what Monk Sakajan Chah said about them when he would te- tell you all about the experiences he had when he was a young monk and going to see these different teachers and how difficult it was because, you know, you had to um, travel so far just to see one. And, you know, they weren't, you know, they had a reputation amongst the forest, Thai forest community. They were very hard to find. And this is another thing, that once they did start to get famous, they would disappear. This is one of the stories about uh, this one monk. And I, did, I don't remember this monk's name, and I, a good excuse why I don't, because I just got to Wat Pa Pong. This was, I don't know, 1973? Yeah, 1973 or 1974. And anyway, that uh, I was just the, one of the most junior monks there. And then this other monk, he came and he... In the morning, he bowed to every monk in the hall, you know, in, in a line, and then afterwards, he was senior to me, I don't know why he was bowing to me, but I couldn't speak Thai or, or the northeastern dialect that good yet. And he bowed to everybody. And then after his lunch, he packed his bowl and his robes, and he disappeared into the forest. And the reason behind that was that he was a really good meditator and that you know, he told people that he developed one of those psychic powers of being able to hear conversations a long way away. And I did mention to you, if ever that happens, that the other monks have to check him out to see if it's true or not. Because if it's false and he's posting, then as a priority offence, he has to leave. So the other monks checked him out just uh, in the nearest market town, which was Warin Chamrap, that he was, uh, they arranged to have a conversa- conversation there about something, and they asked him, while he was in Wapapong, maybe six, seven kilometres away, about, you know, what was the conversation? And he got it absolutely 100% correct. He did have that ability uh, to hear conversations a long, long way away, what they call like the divine ear. And then, as a result of that, they realised, yeah, you're not making this up, it's true. And then the next day, he packed up his bowl and robe and left, went to another monastery. The reason is because good monks like that, they don't want to be famous. They know the dangers of fame. And he would have been a very famous monk. So he just packed up his bowl and robes and disappeared. So, you know, those are the sorts of stories which, you know, you, you, that what I kind of saw the end of it. It was explained to me afterwards, why did that monk leave? Because the monks who were there before me told me exactly what had happened. A really good monk. But quite frankly, you know, as a lay people, we'd just be showering you with gifts and just thinking you're very special and won't leave you alone. That's why just for a bit of peace and quiet and continue his practice, he went somewhere else.
what does Buddhism say about destiny versus free will? Both of them are wrong. There's no such thing as free will. Will is very expensive. Will costs you a lot of money to come here. <laughs> well, you know, not free will. I mean, that idea of free will is you can choose what you want to do. And I already mentioned that simile, not simile, but it was actually I saw that about that man, young student, doing the British National Anthem in a full voice while everybody else, we were cracking up laughing, we were humiliating him. But he did it right at the very end. And I don't remember the exact reason he said why he did that, but he decided to do it. And he gave this excuse afterwards. And to him it was a valid reason why he thought he needed to do this at this time. For him, he thought it was free will. To all the other students, we knew it wasn't. And that was what scared me. Sometime later, as a student, oh, I was a student, or I think it might have been before then, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I was watching the TV, and they had this advert on. I remember this perfectly, St. Bruno Tobacco. Now, if you were a really cool student, you know, like Albert Einstein and all these other um, really sort of smart people, you'd use a pipe. And you put tobacco on the end of the pipe, a little bowl in the pipe, you'd light it, and that would make you really smart. You know, not cigarettes, that was really low class, but a pipe, that was really high class. And and so, um, the advert said, some Bruno tobacco. You put it in your pipe, and this ordinary-looking guy, English guy, was to put some some Bruno tobacco in his pipe, lit it, and he was walking down just the high street. You know, that's the shopping streets in in somewhere in in UK. And then the aroma from the the pipe it just wafted into this newsagent, and in this newsagent there was one of the really beautiful girls. Remember, I was a guy at the time when I was young. And she was so entranced with the aroma of some Bruno tobacco that she left her job and followed him <laughs> down the road, waiting for his first command to, to fulfill it. And then it went past a greengrocer. This incredibly beautiful brunette was in there. And she jumped over the, the counter and was also following him. And then another girl left the bank. And there was a beautiful blonde and then she was following him. And after just about one minute, just all these incredibly beautiful young women were followed him because the smell of some Bruno tobacco was irresistible. <laughs> I don't know if you remember sort of advertisements like that, but I remember that one. And I thought, no one would be that stupid to actually buy this some Bruno tobacco. I did. <laughs> and I lit it, and then just walking down the street, and the only thing which followed me was a dog. <laughs> it totally conned me. But then you kind of wonder why business people tell me that for every dollar you spend in advertisement, you get three dollars back on average. It's very profitable. 
And if you see any of those adverts, they are stupid adverts. They're juvenile. Why? Because they get under the radar. You think like I thought, no one would believe in this. It's just like a joke. But then that catches you. And you go and buy all those stuff. Or you vote for that political party. Or you dress in this particular way. It's just you've been brainwashed into doing this. And that of course made me very suspicious. How much of what I do is really free will and how much is conditioning? It's too much is conditioning. The whole heap is much more than you'd ever think. How much is your own free will? In the 60s, you know, we're trying to be rebellious, you know, the hippie generation. And I also remember this um, occasion. They had these, if anyone knows your history, the Isle of Wight music festivals. So I went down there to you know, have a nice, happy weekend. And then, but you know, what do you wear? So I had some green velvet trousers <laughs> to match my long, bushy hair. And I thought this was being rebellious, like a guy wearing green velvet trousers. And then when I went down there, I found out there was hundreds of other young men also wearing <laughs> It was just another uniform, you know, trying to be different. We're all trying to be different, all sort of getting away from it all and going to the same place, and just you know, wearing the same type of clothes. Conditioning again. Okay, that's free will. And destiny, I think somebody did a very good, uh, some research on, I think it was mostly on Indian gurus and their uh, horoscopes. So did they have a destiny? And they found out, what I thought was really interesting, that uh, you could tell that where they were inclined towards but because they were mindful and had a lot of uh, meditation power, that sometimes they could stop their destiny and change it, and mess around with it. Their destiny wasn't fixed. And I kind of love that idea. It's a part of being rebellious. That if somebody says that this is going to happen to you, I remember somebody told me that, that this uh, horoscope lady said to, to her, that, you know, you're going to have an accident soon. And then the next day, somebody knocked at their door selling them insurance. It was a scam. They worked together. <laughs> so be careful. But against that, against that, I've got to be honest that um, my auntie, and this is my mother's, I shouldn't really call her auntie, but they grew up like, uh, together like sisters. They were both daughters of a single, of, of their mother who just didn't have any other children. So my grandma had my mum and my grandma's uh, sister had this lady called Opal. They grew up together. And after the Second World War, there were young women and so they were looking for partners in life. 
And so uh, my mother and grandma, and uh, my mother and her sister, my auntie, they, first of all, they went to one of these mediums. They didn't have much to do, you know, in those days. There was not much entertainment, so I just did this, just have a see, a bit of fun. And this medium, I checked this out with my mother and with my, this um, auntie, and the medium looked at my auntie, her name was Opal, and said, very soon you're going to meet the love of your life, your husband. His name is Donald, surname Wolfries. Which is not, Donald was a common name in those days, but Wolfries was a very uncommon name. Donald Wolfries, you're going to meet. And they thought it was just a joke. Of course, my mother was with her at this time. And I asked my mother many times. She said, yeah, that happened. And then, a week later or so, she met, my auntie met this lovely young man. They had a dance, that's what they used to do those days, dancing. And, now oh, what's your name? Oh, my name's Opal, what's your name? Donald. Donald what? Wolfies. <laughs> and I kept on asking my auntie, how did you feel? You know, when <laughs> you just have been told you're going to marry Donald Wolfries. You haven't seen this guy at all before, and he comes up to you and said what his name is. And of course they did get married, and they were married for over 60 years. And he only died a few years back. She, amazingly, is still alive. She's 90-something. It was amazing, just... You can't explain that, but I've asked them that, you know, was that true? And they, they confirmed it so many times. That's your own mother and your auntie. You know, of course, what they say is true. Explain that. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, destiny, there's something like karma there. Some people have the ability to talk to the dead. I can talk to the dead. They don't answer back. <laughs> Please excuse me. Does this mean after you die you're in the ghost realm for a while with Meta? Yeah, that's just, call it the ghost realm, similar, but not really um, the same at first. And to be in that spirit realm after you die, that is very, very common. That's one of the reasons why. You, okay, this is a, tr it's a true ghost story. This is, there was this um, disciple, uh, she was Thai. She married a Chinese man. Her name was Pun Sap. Do you remember her, Pun Sap Wong? Okay, her husband's name was George. George and Poonsap. And anyway, this lady Poonsap, she was what we used to call like a battle axe. <laughs> and she, you know, just ruled the household. And she would always just uh, really speak badly of George, even in George's company. And sometimes, you know, she'd be at the temple in person and said, Oh, my husband George is stupid. George, George, you're stupid. <laughs> in front of everybody. I really felt sorry for George, but anyway, that uh, she got very sick, coming towards the end of her life. So she came up to me and said, Achen Prabh, I don't trust my stupid husband George to arrange my funeral service, so can you please arrange it for me? 
and then uh, you know, the, the monastery pay for it, and I'll bequeath another 50% of my estate to the Buddhist society. The rest has to go to George. And I said, I can't do that. I'm a monk. We can't do business deals. And so, but I said, no, I'll ask our committee. And our committee just had a quick look at, you know, how much it costs for a funeral and, and you know, how much the Buddhist society would um, inherit from the, the deed. And said, it's a good deal. So we accepted. <laughs> and I was happy to accept because, you know, to make sure she was confident she's going to get a good funeral. So she died soon afterwards. We did a funeral service for her. And then afterwards, you know, waited for a little time and just asked, because the Buddhist society paid for it all. And afterwards we asked George and said, George, um, you know, have you found the, the, the will? He said, no, I can't find it anywhere. We didn't push him. You know, we just said, okay, when you find it, let us know. Because we're Buddhists, so we're not really uh, that worldly. And then one morning, George appeared at Bodhinyana Monastery, really early in the morning, sometime about 6.30 a.m., in a taxi. He got a taxi to come here. And I've never seen him so scared. So what happened? He said, here's the will. I told mom, take it, please, quickly. <laughs> what happened? He said, Putsup came last night. <laughs> George, George, you stupid husband, you know where that will is. Get it now. <laughs> She was really, really scared. Oh, he was rather, and because of his wife. She was scary enough as when she was alive. Imagine when she was a ghost. <laughs> and that is all true. That happened. So that's one of the reasons why be very careful. You can't trick a ghost. <laughs> anyway. A novice monk asked the senior monk, okay, this is a joke here, can we send emails? Senior monk said, yes, as long as there is no, you know this joke? No attachments, yes. <laughs> Question though, why are we so control freaks? How to be less a control freak? Let go, can you please elaborate? Okay, so when you go back and you open up your email account, Press the delete button. Delete all the emails. <laughs> Can you do that? No. Why not? <laughs> Say you're on retreat and, and Ajahn Brahm told you to. <laughs> no, why not? Remember that lovely uh, little poster outside the, the dining room about the argument between uh, this person and his um, iPhone. You're my iPhone. No, says the iPhone. You are mine. Who is the owner? You're your iPhone. You don't own your iPhone. You can't even delete all those messages. Your iPhone owns you. Be careful. And anyway, I... Seen, I don't own an iPhone, don't have one, but I did notice this, to make it very clear that the iPhone owns you, and it, you like being in a prison, because when you look at your iPhone, you, call it, you used to call it a cell 
phone, cell, and you find out the best cell phones, the best reception, you can see how many bars on your cell phone. <laughs> Isn't that telling you something? <laughs> what can we do, practices, in daily fake life to let go of the wrong view of self? I, myself, mine, much more. You know, a lot of times it's very difficult to do that in the lay life because it's not even being questioned. In the lay life, we all assume there's a self in there. It's just figuring out what exactly it is. And the idea that there's nothing there at all, you have to have some of those assumptions challenged. And that's very difficult to do that. That's one of the reasons why it's great to be on a retreat or in a good monastery, because there, the people there, they do challenge those ideas. And they give you really hard evidence. It's not a belief, not a theory, not a view. It's what you, you can see really clearly when you go into these deep meditations. There's no one there. It's empty. There's one of the similes which I concocted years ago. And that was the simile of the driverless bus. And this was years before Google or Tesla came up with the idea. And actually I can even remember the year when I first said that. That was in 1991, I think. But anyway, it's a long time ago. And I said that, now usually, usual simile, life is like a bus journey. That's pretty uh, used many times. But life is a bus journey, but sometimes things go wrong in your journey. Sometimes you're going through this really beautiful place, lovely uh, fish and chip shops, and lovely rivers, and streams, and mountains, and green fields, whatever you like. And you go there and you you shout at the bus driver, please slow down or stop. What does your bus driver do when you have some nice experiences in life? The bus driver puts his feet on the accelerator and speeds up. The good times in your life don't last as long as you think they should. And then you go through the toxic waste dumps of life. And there, look out the window and it's disgusting what you're seeing. And it's really horrible. And so you tell the bus driver, speed up, get out of here quick. What does your bus driver do too often? Slows down, stops and parks. <laughs> Why is it the unpleasant times of life, life longer than they sh- last longer than they should? And so you realize it's your bus driver's fault. Your bus driver doesn't know how to uh, drive a bus. So you have to go and talk to your bus driver and teach them how to drive properly. When it's unpleasant, get out as fast as you can. When it's pleasant, slow down. Simple. So first of all, if you're going to teach your bus driver, you've got to find out where your bus driver lives. Your will your doer, your choice. Why is it we make too many bad choices in life? 
Why is it that uh, the good choices we make doesn't really work? Surely we should do something better in our life after all these years so that we have much more happiness, freedom, peace and less of these stressful moments. So you find your bus driver, your will. You do your meditation and finally you get to the front of the bus where the bus driver's seat is. In deep meditation you come face to face with your bus driver. And when you get to the, the bus driver's seat, you get one of the shocks of your life, of your many lives. The bus driver's seat is empty. There's no one there. It's not what you expect. What's the result of that? You go back to your seat and you stop complaining. Your wants and not wants disappear. There's no one to complain to. Desire and aversion start to vanish. No one to tell, please go faster. Please legs, don't hurt so much. Please mouth, don't sort of cough so much. Please uh, whatever else you've got there, you don't, please don't hurt so much. Please, our bus driver, there's only a couple of days left. Can I have at least a nimiter, if not a jhana? Why not? <laughs> and so you try and work with your bus driver to try and do a bit more loving kindness, get up a bit more early, don't talk so much, and make all these deals with your bus driver. But when you find out the bus driver's seat is empty, then what are you going to do? Nothing. And that's when things get very easy. So that's answered that question. Is it correct to say that Bodhisattva had to meditate for six years partly because during when the Buddha Kassava time he, Jyotipala, denounced Buddha Kassava as who is this baldy uh, to be enlightened? In Buddha's time the story said that normally it took one week or a few months, not years. Remember when the Buddha first uh, sat under that rose apple tree and got the first jhana, he didn't know what he was up to and it didn't really make that much difference to him at the time he was still just an ordinary kid he eventually sort of got married and did those sorts of stuff but then eventually there was something in him that he had to leave home and just try out the, the, um, the spiritual life try and find meaning in his life and that's what he did and it was only afterwards he tried so many paths, nothing worked. And he was getting, he tried all the fasting stuff and got really, 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 really thin. And he realized that that's not the way. I realized that in the early part of my life. <laughs> I saw one of these one, amazing t-shirts. If I wasn't a monk, I would have worn it. And it said, I beat anorexia. <laughs> okay, the other joke, I'm so that you don't need to put it in the, the box there. Now what is anorexia? If you look in the medical dictionary, anorexia says, you look in a mirror and you think you're fat. 
So now I know what I suffer from. I'm an <laughs> Every time I look in the mirror, I think I'm fat. Anyway. <clears throat> so, how much do you have to meditate for? The, the Buddha wasn't really meditating yet. He meditated under the Bodhi tree, but then he didn't do that again until afterwards. And when he thought, he tried everything else, and he thought that might be the way to become enlightened. And he tried it, and it worked. And the reason where he doubted that as a legitimate path was that it was too pleasant. And a lot of people still have the idea, if it's pleasant, it can't lead to enlightenment. And that's one of the difficult points. Even when I was a Buddhist layperson before I became... Uh, actually, everyone is a layperson before they became a monk. But anyway, I was hanging around in the Thai temple, that was a close temple for me, in London, and all these other sort of people would come in and I would say that I'm going to be a monk, I've already made arrangements. And then uh, I saw some of these people, they were quite well-known Buddhists, and I saw them afterwards, and you know, I said, well, you know, I'm still a monk, I'm a happy monk. And they said, we never thought you'd make it. As a monk. And I said, why? Because you were too happy. I was happy as a lay person. And they thought, if you're happy as a lay person, then it's like going to hospital. Why go to a hospital if you're not sick? That's how they thought. But I was a happy lay person and a, even a happier monk. And I already said, this is where I, I, I belonged. So, anyway, that's one of the reasons why people didn't like that type of meditation, because they thought you get too happy. Yeah, enlightenment is happy. So you get really happy if you follow this meditation path. Is it true that Buddha Maitreya is the future Buddha? What is a sign? When will he appear? Would anyone be enlightened before Buddha Maitreya? Yes, many people can become enlightened before the Buddha Maitreya, but they become arahats. The difference between an arahat, fully enlightened, and a Buddha is that the Buddha becomes uh, uh, an arahat at the time when there's no other Dhamma being taught. Like, you know, the Buddha uh, Sakyamuni. There was no other Buddhism really being taught at the time. The Eightfold Path he described it as uh, a path in the jungle which had been overgrown. And so, you know, he cleared it up so people could actually walk that path. And they say Buddha Maitreya will be the future Buddha. This, I like to give some, stir people up a bit. Will the Buddha Maitreya be male or female? Why? Why was the Buddha born in India? The next Buddha, Maitreya, what country would he come from? Would he be a US citizen, or Sri Lankan, or Aussie? Where would he, look, a, a Buddha will take on the gender which is the most useful for the path of teaching the Dhamma.
he will take on the nationality of a country which again is conducive to teaching the Dhamma. So what, where that's going to be, who knows? It does not have to be a male. <coughs> it does not have to be Indian. I reckon it could be an Aussie. That's why, you know when the Buddha had, this is Sakyamuni Buddha, you know when uh, he had that vision, he was lying uh, on his right side with his face pointing north and his eyes looking west. And that's when people said, that was a sign that Buddhism is going to travel to the west. But the way you're looking doesn't tell you which way you're going to travel. It's the way your feet are pointing, that's where you're going. His feet were pointing south. What's south of India? Yay! He got it! <laughs> that was the sign that the Buddhism was going to come to Australia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do that, Jeff, if someone had a very restrictive diet which was borderline and borderline an eating disorder and they were obsessive over calories, amount of food, their weight, but aren't Buddhist and don't really understand the concept of no self. What would you advise to them? I would advise in that story I said that uh, when you are just so obsessive and negative and you don't know how to laugh, that means that your arteries and veins, they contract. They get smaller. You've got less opportunity for avoiding like blockages in your arteries and veins because you've got narrow arteries and veins and so you're going to copper an aneurysm or a heart attack or a stroke but when you're a very happy person and then your arteries get wider and larger every time you laugh which means like Santa Claus you live hundreds of years. <laughs> so anyway, obsessive about anything is not really good. And sometimes you wonder, length of life or quality of life? Which would you want? Yes, I can. So please, when you sort of see me, don't say, oh, we wish, may you live a long time, Ajahn Brahm. And so may you live a high quality life, Ajahn Brahm. Not long. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodhagaya, how did he know what he was looking for? He didn't know what he was looking for, but he, know, he knew how to look, which was going into the jhanas, purifying the mind of all the hindrances, and having so few. Um, or well, actually no hindrances after, when you, after you get into a jhana and very few hindrances that when he does look and see what he can see he can trust in that's a difficult thing how do you know that what you see what you smell what you know is reliable and true it looks true 
just like that levitating flower pot. If it goes against your core beliefs, it really challenges you. So again with, um, what's his name, Bernard Carr, he was telling me about one of the experiments he did where, you may have seen this before, and maybe you think it's fake, about these psychics who can levitate tables, you know, big heavy tables, and have them rise into the air. So with one of his fellow physicists, he said, come on, these spirit people, they can, they can uh, levitate very heavy dining tables. So that, and he said, you can have a look everywhere. There's no electric, no one's going on. There's no electric currents being turned on. And so, you know, he told me about one of his friends was going uh, you know, under the table while it was being levitated checking everybody out, making sure there was no tricks. He couldn't see any tricks at all. And he was a sort of a top scientist. And he said, they must be hypnotizing me or I'm hallucinating, because this can't be happening. And the point was that because this was challenging his beliefs as a scientist so much, he could not see it. It actually was levitating, but it's unexplainable. And because of that, he was trying so hard to find an ex uh, uh, a reason, the only thing was, he could say, is, it wasn't happening, I'm just hallucinating. And that's the trouble that we have to suspend some of our core beliefs to see the Dhamma. And we don't want to do that. But anyway, it's true. You know, you have to be courageous if you want to you know, have insights. Insights don't just uh, confirm what you already know, but they challenge it to the very heart of it. Anyway, dear Ajahn Brahm, is uh, oh, the sixth factor of the N8P. What's the N8P? It's a noble eightfold path. Mostly about restraining the five senses, combined with a smattering of kindness and a dash of wisdom power. Yeah, that's pretty good. So the effort doesn't make any sense to me. And again, I've seen people with far more effort than I can ever manage to conjure up, and they just get stressed out. They don't get anywhere. And one of those, of course, was the Bodhisattva. Huge effort. Not eating, and just uh, all the other stuff he was doing. And he said no. That's not the way. But the fact of the Eightfold Path, is, they call it Samawayama. Wayama, you know, does mean like effort, striving, but it's more like the restraining, saying no, letting go of things, letting things be, and realize you don't need to force it. Just what we did the first day with Prem, how to keep this water perfectly still striving, forcing it, trying to hold it, you get so tired. You put it down and it becomes still all by itself. I have a question which has no relevance to meditation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll answer if I can. Uh, that is, where does one's mind dwell? Okay. This is, uh, I'm going to demonstrate this now. Now, you're either happy or you're unhappy. Okay? So, 
I want you to, do you know which one it is? It doesn't say you're in between. If it's like more happiness than unhappiness, then you're happy. If it's more unhappiness than, than happiness, you're, un, you're the opposite, you're unhappy. Please put your hand up if you're happy. Keep your hand up. Now, can you please point to that happiness for me? Point to it. Point to it. Were you imagining it? You're pointing all over the place. You were happy. Why can't you locate it? And the reason is, of course, because happiness doesn't live in the head. It doesn't live in the heart. It doesn't live in your toe. It doesn't live in the body. The happiness belongs in the mind. It's a mental... Um, uh, there's someone which lives in the mind. And so, things like happiness, sadness, grief, uh, joy, peace, just like the trees and the flowers and the bushes, that defines what a garden is. These qualities, peace, freedom, joy, that, de that uh, defines what a mind is. So that's why you can't say, where does a mind live? It doesn't live sort of, you know, in, in your heart or in jhana grove. This is in the mind space. That's one of the reasons why your physical body dies. That mind just keeps going on for a while. Is it in the heart? Is it in one's brain? Of course not. I've already mentioned that the scientists who find people like the boy with no brain, he hasn't got a brain. He's got cerebral fluid. Now as Professor as of Sheffield University, what was his name again? But anyway, he, f he found a way, this kid um, who was, oh, his name is just on the edge of my mind, that he found a, a kid, he was a graduate student, graduate student in mathematics at Sheffield University, and that uh, his skull shape was slightly deformed. And so this professor, I know it's not pimple normal. His professor did a CT scan of his brain and found there wasn't a brain. Cerebral fluid. There was a 1% cortex, I think he said, but that's nowhere near enough to be able to keep you know, a brain functioning. He became known as a boy with no brain. Just cerebral fluid inside. And he was... He got a first-class honours in mathematics. He was now doing graduate studies. Perfectly looked fine. He had a girlfriend. He was totally balanced. He was actually more normal than normal. And to do an experiment, to follow up that experiment, can you please move your head from side to side? If you hear any sloshing, <laughs> then maybe you've got a brain as well. <laughs> anyway... Ah, okay, so mind doesn't live in the world. The mind is separate from it. Regarding rebirth, I was wondering, are beings reborn on planet Earth? As I heard somewhere that all the Buddhas are born in light and die in the same place. No. Is this true? No. 
And if it is, what would be the outcome if due to climate change, etc., the Earth became uninhabitable? Would beings be born on another planet or in different worlds? Do you believe in uh, UFOs and extraterrestrial beings? Do you have you ever met an alien? I met some. <laughs> when I went to UK, London, Heathrow Airport, there is a big line and it says on there, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> to go to the passport control. <laughs> it does say that, aliens. I think they mean it in a different sense. But <laughs> why not in other planets? Would you like to be reborn back in Earth? Or have you had enough of Earth? You want to be reborn with, with, with aliens and nice spaceships? You say, you don't have to go to school, you just get all that knowledge implanted in your brain, they just stick something in there, and then you know everything. It's much better than going to university, isn't it? <laughs> How can we identify an enlightened monk nun? You cannot know who an enlightened monk or nun is, but you can certainly know who is not enlightened. <laughs> That's all you can know. But look, uh, after all those years staying with Ajahn Chah, you know, sometimes people ask me, was Ajahn Chah enlightened? And I put my hand up and say, yes. I can say that, you can't. You know, because of stuff which you saw all that time, over eight and a half years, you know, to see, never getting angry, always being sort of wise, being peaceful, putting up with all his disciples like the Western monks. And then also, the thing which really just turned me over, that one occasion when he, he invited me just to go upstairs into his private room to get something for him. And this was his personal quarters. And by this time, kings and queens were coming to visit him, so anything he wanted, he could, could have. And in his room, I just, amazing I can still remember it, he had just a, uh, one of the little grass mats with a wooden pillow, not a sort of a soft pillow, but a wooden pillow, and about a couple of spare robes, and that was it. Just, his room was empty even though he could have whatever luxurious things which he needed, or he wanted. He kept his rooms just so bare. And I thought that, you know, he could have anything, but he decided not to, and lived so simply. I thought, well, you know, all the stuff I've heard about him, you know, his Dharma talks, and see that he actually lives that life, that was impressive. Thank you for your Dharma talks. I understand that one must always forgive others and have loving kindness towards others. However, if someone has previously hurt you and demolished a big part of you previously, although I have forgiven them and do not hold a grudge against them, do you recommend forgetting the past and rekindling the relationship to start all over? No, don't need to rekindle the relationship unless you have to, unless it's someone really close to you. Just instead, just you know, move forward. Don't linger on the past. Don't wish anybody sort of ill will. But just to go forward in life. It gets complicated when you have somebody, you know, had a lot of problems with previously. 
If you can with some happiness and well-being, fine. But if not, what was that story of this Sri Lankan man over in Brisbane? When I went, to, I was just going through Brisbane and he invited me for lunch. And then when I went to his house for, for the lunch, that's where he told me that, you know, he, I said, how many children have you got? He said, I had two sons. There's only one was there. Where's the other son? And he said, I haven't seen him for about five years. And I asked the, this, I asked the father, sorry, where's your, your other son? They hadn't seen each other for five years. They lived in the same town, in some suburb of Brisbane. And I asked now the other son, who was actually there, sort of, where is your, your brother? Do you see him? He said, oh, I see him all the time, but just my father and him just do not get on. And because they were Sri Lankan, because they respected me, I asked for the telephone, can you call your, your brother who's not here? So he called his brother, and said, give me the phone. And I said, this is Ajahn Brahm, you know who I am? He said, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you're a very well-known monk. Come to your dad's house now. And I turned off the phone. Really put him in a spot. He had to come. So for the first time in five years, these two brothers, the, 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 one of the brothers who hadn't seen his father for such a long time actually came into the room and I said, sit next to your dad. And he did. So these two hadn't seen each other for such a long time. They wouldn't look at each other. And I started off with the, with the, brother, with the son and I said, why did you have this big falling out? You know what he said? I can't remember. <laughs> it's stupid. I asked the dad. I said, "Why, you know, why did you fall out?" He said, "I don't remember either. We just don't like each other." And I said, "Okay, turn around and look at each other." And they made up. So you know, got this family back together again. It was really cool to do something like that. And of course, the result of that, those of you who go into the dining room. Or, yeah, not the dining room, but next to the kitchen where the buffet is at Bodhinyana Monastery. You see the steel tables over there? The steel tables on which they put the, the food in Bodhinyana uh, buffet area. He offered those. He just said, just out of thanks for bringing my family together. That was really nice. Most Reverend Ajahn Brahm, most Reverend. You know that sometimes I go to these conferences and sometimes they, uh, they call many people most reverend, but then what about these really senior monks? And they call them the very most reverend <laughs> and the extremely most reverend and the more reverend than anybody else reverend. <laughs> this gets crazy after all. And what do you mean most reverend? Uh, <laughs> You know that you know, in Buddhism we call monks who have, or even nuns who have 20 years or more, oh no, first of all 10 years or more, what do we call them? <coughs> Terror. What do you call them if they have 20 years or more? Maha Terror. What if they have 30 years or more? We don't say anything, it's all the same. I thought it was really unfair. So, you know, when you get 20 rains, that's all you get is Mahatera. So I thought, let's make it more modern. 30 rains or more, you're called? 
Mega Terra, yeah. <laughs> 40 years or more, Giga Terra. <laughs> That's why I laugh a lot. <laughs> Giggle Terra. <laughs> and 50 years, Terra Terra. <laughs> always take an opportunity to make a joke. As per your advice, I combine the, I combine the walking meditation, focusing on the steps, combine it with the breath, with each step, and able to concentrate my mind, which was rather difficult, easier. I'm quite happy and very grateful to you. Excellent. One of my friends, when she was meditating, she felt her body get bigger and bigger, and after that her husband not let her meditate. How can I help her? Can you please explain? Yeah, again, I said that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't go crazy or mad. This is just perception. You come back to normal perceptions afterwards. What to do if I stuck in the watching the breath for very long and seems no progression? There is no progression. It's ingression. You're watching the breath for a very, very long time be contented and easily satisfied. Don't be demanding stuff. This is good enough for me. When you're happy to be here, and the breath is a pretty happy place to, to be with, and then it gets happier and happier, and then you just piss out into jhanas. Dear Ajahn, one can read Sutta, understand the teacher, and develop wisdom. <laughs> so why meditate? Can you really develop wisdom? A lot of times... You read the suttas, but a lot of times you read it in translation. There's many different types of translation. And you usually choose a translation which suits your defilements. So, for example, like concentration as a translation for samadhi does not mean concentration. But then you find some translations that says that. It says concentration. I always call it stillness. So which translation are you going to read? The one which suits you. So why meditate? Because meditation overcomes the hindrances again. Reading the suttas doesn't overcome the hindrances. Listening to me teach doesn't overcome the hindrances. I can hear you um, are yawning <laughs> but meditation does overcome the hindrances it's not a Kapana Sutta the only way to overcome the five hindrances is jhana Ajahn Brahm when encountering Nimitta do you have a choice to continue into a jhana or not it could be inconvenient if I was having a quick meditation before work and you got into a full-blown jhana for a week. The boss wouldn't be impressed. A lot of times if you get these charges, you get psychic powers too. So when you get to the work, you look at your boss, zap it, and get a raise. Increase your pay. It is worthwhile, no matter what, getting a nice jhana. Even if you get sacked, doesn't matter. How should I approach questions from family, friends and acquaintances about my meditation experience from this retreat without potentially negatively impacting uh, their own experience with meditation? 
they will have a look at you, not what you say, but how you say it. You know, your body language, your peace, your happiness. And if, you know, they say, oh, you've just been going on the wrong path, then, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in the wrong path, but it's a wonderful wrong path. (laughs) (laughs) So after a while, you'll find that it's just your behavior will impress them much more than anything you speak. Do nimittas come when the external five senses are completely absent? Usually, if you have enough mindfulness. Because sometimes, you know another time when the external five senses are completely absent and you don't get nimittas? Anesthetic. Having an operation. Your five senses are absent. But a lot of times, that so is your mental consciousness it's asleep not happening but it's usually in in other places that when you're meditating and the five senses stop then your mind carries on really clear what is it called when we stop breathing for a moment and then slowly watching the breath come back uh, the sound is very soft and then getting stronger and louder then it could be all sorts of things it could be sleepiness but you know it's like the jhanas and nimittas and stuff because it's got power, it's got oomph to it. Dear Ajahn Brahm, do we need to wish good things in order to gain merits after doing good things? No, otherwise won't that merit come to us? Even when you give to other people, you get lots of merits back for yourself. Every time I do a service, like I'm, I'm teaching you now, am I making merits? Yeah, you bet. That's why I was telling people today that some of the monks over in Serpentine have got COVID. I never get COVID. I do lots of merits to other people. I get too much merits for myself. Anyway, do I have lots of merits? Seems that way. Am I going to live a long life? Hope not. (laughs) Just average. Anyway, thank you for your valuable teachings. We are so lucky to have you. May you always be blessed with triple gems for this service you are doing for the whole world. Not for the whole world, but for enough. It's 9.09. Should I carry on a bit longer? There's lots of questions here. No. <laughs> Who says yes? Who says no? Hands up. Yes. No? Hands up. Seriously. Sorry? No, I need to make more merits. what is the name of the lunch blessing chant please where can we find a translation I actually don't know we have it in one of the books somewhere in the chanting book oh yeah that's where you find where the chants are (laughs) in breathing meditation how do we let the breath to proceed naturally without interfering or affecting it while the mind is constantly following it you just let go, relax, be a passenger. Remember, it's a driverless bus. When I am good enough, I water the good qualities in myself. However, defilements, actions, thoughts keep arising, happening in daily life that are less than wholesome. I wonder what I need to do to be good enough. You're more than good enough. Don't look at the two bad bricks. Look at the 998 good bricks. Why is it we have a defilement? That's what we remember. How many defilements didn't you have today? 
How many beautiful qualities have, have you done today? But why does one stupid word and you remember that? You focus on that. It's really unfair. I set the bar low. I do not aspire to be a saint. Just like some peace in my mind and stillness in my practice. If that's the case, then don't be so judgmental of yourself. Give yourself the benefit of the doubt. I look at you and my decision, are you guilty or innocent? What's it? Um, open verdict. Open verdict means that I'm not going to judge you. If you've done some wrong things on this retreat, why? Because of my bad teachings, not your fault. If you haven't got a jhana on this retreat, whose fault is it? My fault, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't had any limiters, whose fault is it? My fault, yeah. So you don't have to blame yourself at all. Easy. <laughs> okay. You're feeling not so well. So, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. If I'm a bad teacher, it's Ajahn Chah's fault. <laughs> okay. If I'm, if I'm fat, overweight, it's a cook's fault. 